Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green and your host. Gabor, welcome. Nice to be with you. Thank you. It's so great to have you. Uh, as I mentioned before we hit record, such an honor and privilege to have you on the show. You are a living legend. And, you know, as I was mentioning, my old friend, Lisa Rankin, who we've had on the show multiple times, speaks so highly of you. So it's just so great to have you. Thank you. You know, many of our listeners are likely familiar with you, but for those who are not, would, would you mind just talking a little bit about your background and journey, which led you to writing your, your latest incredible book, The Myth of Normal? Do you want me to begin with my beginnings or my professional work? Where do you want me to go take it? I, I think just tell people a little bit about your, your beginnings and your professional work as succinctly as possible. I know you, you have such a great breadth of work that's going to be difficult to do, but I'll say in five, in five minutes, tell us what you can well, I'll tell you what personally is that I was born in Budapest, 1944, January. The Jewish parents, two months before the Nazis occupied Hungary. You can imagine what my first year of life was like, and it left me with significant traumas. I then um, emigrated with my family to Canada after the revolution against the Stalinist dictatorship in Hungary that occurred in October 1956. A lot of Hungarians left the country then, refugees, and we ended up in Vancouver, Canada, where I've lived ever since, where I entered medical school after three years as a high school teacher, I became a physician. And in my medical work, both in my personal life, having to deal with the dichotomy between my success as a physician, my popularity as a as a doctor, and, uh, you know, uh, successes in other areas of endeavor, there was my own unhappiness, the difficulties of my marriage, and the challenges of my children. And in my mid-40s, I had to begin to ask myself, well, what's going on here? And not surprisingly, that took me back to looking at the traumas that I had endured very early in life. At the same time, as a family physician and a palliative care doctor, I also began to notice that who got sick and who didn't wasn't accidental that people's emotional traumas in childhood had a significant resonance in their adult illnesses, whether of mind as in mental illnesses, so-called, or in illnesses of the body. <clears throat> so whether we're talking about ADHD, with which I was diagnosed at age 54, and that became my first book, or whether we're talking about chronic um, fatigue or other autoimmune conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, or malignancy, or depression, or anxiety, or psychosis, I began to notice that stuff had happened to these people, and those illnesses were not um, random uh, strokes of bad luck, but they were outcomes of a process that had begun with childhood adversity. Um, and this was reinforced even more when I worked for 12 years in Vancouver's downtown east side, which is North America's, in fact, the Western world's <clears throat> most concentrated area of drug use. If anybody visits here, they're shocked at what they see in the streets, thousands of people injecting and uh, using drugs of all kinds. I worked there for 12 years. <clears throat> Again, the connection between trauma and addiction became inescapable in my experience and observation. And what was astonishing is when I turned to the medical literature, the scientific literature connecting physiological illness of the body, mental health conditions, addictions, there was a vast body of scientific literature connecting childhood trauma and these adult outcomes. And none of this is taught in the medical schools. Nobody had taught me about it, despite the fact that the scientific evidence appears in the major medical journals. Medicine separates the mind from the body and the individual from the environment. So I wasn't adequately trained to understand what I was dealing with. But once I, my eyes began to open because of my own stuff that I had to deal with and what I saw my clients live with and die with, the link between childhood experience and adult outcomes became inextricably clear. And that has been proven by 100 years of scientific research one more time published in major scientific and medical journals, and yet it flies under the medical practice radar. That's a summary. Well done. <laughs> There's a lot to unpack there. And so with regards to childhood trauma, you know, th there's a spectrum of trauma, big T and little T, as you talk about in the book. 
can you can you walk us through big T specifically what you experience as as a child and then also talk about little T as well and what that looks like? So first we have to understand the word trauma itself. And trauma doesn't just mean bad things happening to you. It's actually not what happens to you or what happens inside you. The word trauma comes from a Greek word for wound or wounding. So trauma is a wound. It's a psychological wound that you sustain or that, that persists and leaves an imprint in your mind and in your body and on your functioning. So trauma is a wound. Now, the big T traumas are the ones that people usually identify as traumatic, such as a war, a tsunami, um, uh, the death of a parent, physical, sexual, emotional abuse, uh, a parent dying, a parent being mentally ill, a parent being addicted, violence in the family, a parent being jailed, any major separation from a parent, um, a rancorous divorce, neglect. These are what have been called the big T traumas. And they certainly wound kids, and, and kids sustain wounds, psychological wounds. As a result, those wounds then show up in their functioning and in their health later on in life. But that's not the only way you can wound kids. You can also wound kids in ways that are very common and normal in this society, and that's part of the reason for my title of the book, The Myth of Normal, because it is normal, for example, in this culture to tell parents not to pick up a crying child. Well, we're not talking about abuse, we're not talking about lack of love, we're talking about a child's needs being ignored. The child, the infant, has a need to be held. You tell a mother gorilla not to pick up their distressed infant. You tell a mother dog or bear to ignore the distress of the infant. But we're telling parents to let their kids cry it out and go back to sleep on their own. We've been telling this for 100 years. The child doesn't need to be picked up because the child doesn't need to be held. That's, a, that's an emotional, physiological need of the child. When you're not doing that, you're wounding them. You don't mean to, but you are. So the small T traumas are not the big things that happened that shouldn't have, but the small things that should have happened but didn't. So human children are born with certain inalienable needs. When I say inalienable, inalienable needs, I mean needs that evolution programmed into us as creatures. Every Creature, every being, plant or animal, enters this world with certain needs. If those needs are met, development will be healthy. If they're not, it won't be. If a plant doesn't get enough water, it will not be healthy. If it doesn't get enough sunlight, it won't be healthy. Children are also born with certain needs dictated by evolution. And these are for unconditional attachment, connection, being held, received, accepted by the parents. They have a need not to have to work to make their relationship work. So there's nothing the child should have to do. They don't have to be pretty, compliant, smart, good, successful to make the relationship with the parent work. There's nothing they should have to do to make the relationship work and nothing they could, should be able to do to break their relationship. That's the second essential need of healthy human development. The third essential human need of children or a need of human children is the capacity to experience all their emotions, all their emotions. Now, the, our brains are wired scientifically, neuroscientifically studied for certain emotional experiences. Love, anger, curiosity, lust, fear, grief. These are all essential emotions that human brains are wired for. For healthy development, the child needs to be able to experience all of them and have that received by the parents. In our society, a lot of parents get the advice don't allow your kid to be angry. Or when a kid is, in, when, when a kid is grieving something, just tell them to get over it. This, this happens all the time. When we do that, we're denying the essential need of the child. Our children, fourthly, also have a need for free, spontaneous play. So when we give one-year-old kids this thing, we've just destroyed their capacity to play spontaneously, creatively, and intuitively. Those are four essential needs. A lot of children are wounded in a society not because the parents hurt them by doing bad things, although that happens too, but by not meeting their needs. So that's, those, that's the big T trauma, and this is most small T, and the implications are heavy in both kinds of Ts. And can you talk about your personal experience growing up in 
Well, so my experience was that I was two months of age when the Nazis occupied Hungary. Uh, when I was five months of age, my grandparents were transported and murdered in Auschwitz. And um, my mother and I came near to suffering the same fate. So you can imagine her terror and her grief and the stress she was under. My father was away in forced labor. She didn't know if he was dead or alive. This was my first year. And uh, when I was 11 months old, to save my life, she handed me to a complete stranger in the street to Budapest and asked her to take me to a place of relative refuge because I would not have survived under the conditions that she had to live under. So I had this major trauma um, of abandonment. Of course, she wasn't abandoning me. She was saving my life. But the infant can only experience it as abandonment. And that sense of abandonment then, who gets abandoned? Somebody who's not worth it. Somebody who's not good enough. Somebody who's not important. So my wound is not that my mother gave me to the stranger. My wound is what I made of it. But what happened inside is the belief that I was being abandoned and that I wasn't worthy. I wasn't lovable. I carried that into my adult life, into my medical career, into my marriage. So that's what happened to me. You don't need such dramatic circumstances to make people feel that they have to earn the right to exist. In my case, it led to all kinds of conflicts in my marriage. The slightest slight I would um, interpret as an abandonment or rejection, which would make me very upset in my marriage. So a lot of conflict. And it made me into a workaholic doctor who had to justify his existence by being always available for everybody but his own family. So that my workaholism, which came out of my need to prove the value of my existence, which came out of my one-year-old experience, made me very successful in this world, very high respected and well paid. And it made me ignore my own children because of course, when the beeper went, I was out of the house. So this is how trauma is passed on from one generation to the next, not intentionally by the most loving parents, because we can't help it until we deal with it ourselves. You, know, you mentioned trauma passed on from one generation to the next. When one experiences trauma, like you've identified being abandoned as a child, uh, it, I think that's easier to, to identify. Whereas generational trauma, if there's trauma passed down from my grandfather, who passed away before I was born, a little more difficult to identify. How, how does one go about that process in identifying the generational trauma that's been passed down? Let me just say that 95% of trauma is multi-generational. That's just how it works. We unwittingly pass it on. Now, I would argue, now it's certainly true that from a biological point of view, um, when grandparents are traumatized, some of that is passed on into the genetic functioning of even their grandchildren. Not their genes as such, but how those genes are triggered or not triggered, how they come activated and how they don't. So that's called epigenetics. But you know, that's just an emerging field. They're only beginning to understand it now. But I would say that any trauma that was passed on to you from your grandfather wasn't, didn't skip a generation. It was passed on to you. Was this a maternal or a paternal grandfather? Both, and me specifically, both my grandfathers died before I was born. And I just think it's an example, a lot of people have grandparents they never met. I would say that whatever was passed on to you happened through your parents and through your parents' experience in life, which they hadn't quite resolved by the time they had you. That's how I would say that the multi-generation was passed on. And a lot of, you know, sometimes Jason people tell me, I had a perfectly happy childhood, you know? And uh, that usually takes me about three minutes to sort that one out. So. Well, it, it does bring the point, I think, if one does the work, mm -hmm. they can identify the trauma in their own life. But I think it becomes a lot more difficult when you're trying to identify the potential trauma in a parent or a grandparent who maybe is not open to doing the work or hasn't shared the trauma. And if you're saying 95% trauma is, is passed down, I'm just trying to give people an idea of what they can do to understand that, to do the necessary yeah. work. Well, so I, I think the more people understand their own traumas, the more see with clear eyes the traumas of others. So here's the point about trauma. 
recall what I said. Trauma is not what happened to you. It's what happened inside you. So trauma is the wound. Trauma is not the event. It's the wound that you're carrying. That means you're carrying into the present. It's an unhealed wound is what it is. And so that trauma doesn't have to be recalled as such always because it's always remembered. So there's a difference between recall and remembering. Recall is conscious. I can recall what I had for breakfast. I can recall our conversation so far. I can recall what somebody said to me when I was five years old. That's calling it back. That's your conscious recall. But the body has a memory in it. The nervous system has a memory that is not necessarily conscious, but the wound will still show up in the present moment. So you tell me the last time you were upset with somebody, and I can tell you exactly your childhood trauma. Because uh, 95% of upsets like in, it says in the Course of Miracles, we're never we're never upset about what we're upset about. So most of the time, people are upset. It's about something else. And so, in the first chapter of this book, I talk about how my wife is not there to pick me up at the airport on my return from a speaking trip. I go into this rage and this withdrawal. Well, what's that about? It's not about me being seventy years old and my wife, the artist, forgot that she had a husband when she was in the middle of a painting. That's only been going on for the last 50 years, for God's sakes. It's, it's about the fact that the memory the, that I don't recall, but the emotional memory of abandonment is triggered in my brain. And so it's very easy for me to tell about somebody's childhood trauma just if they tell me the last time they were really upset with somebody in their lives. Usually it's about old stuff. What role does perspective play here? You know, let's say two two people experience a similar traumatic event, say a car accident, for example. Same injuries, same experience. One walks away feeling blessed that they didn't have more serious injuries. The other, you know, walks away feeling unlucky and victim, and it defines them. Yeah. So um, uncanny that you would say that, because I often talk about that very example for my own family practice of people being, say, rear-ended with about the same force. And one of them develops severe back pain and and uh, <clears throat> depression, and you know, and the other, no big deal. And 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 the insurance companies say, well, how can you, you? This is not possible because there was the same impact as the other person, and you're not. They're not suffering. Why are you? Here's the deal. Trauma is again not what happens to you. It's what happens inside you as a result. So when you said the same traumatic event happened to the both of them, no, it didn't. They both had a car accident. One was traumatized, the other wasn't. Now, what's the difference? Here's what I found in family practice. And as a family practitioner, I did have an advantage over my specialist colleagues in that I knew my patients. I knew their family histories. I knew their backgrounds. I knew them as individuals. Two people get rear-ended with the same force, okay? One of them had childhood trauma. Let's say they were abused, okay? The other didn't. The car accident and the abuse have something in common. The child did nothing to bring it on. They couldn't have foreseen it, and they couldn't have protected themselves against it. That's the same with the car accident. Do you see the similarity? Number one. Number two, the person who's traumatized tends to carry themselves more stiffly, more in a defensive mode. People are traumatized, the nervous system tends to be more in a defensive mode. When your nervous system is in defensive mode, you tend to be more rigid. Now, take a take a, a blade of grass or take a, a piece of straw and bend them. What happens to the grass when you bend it? It rebounds. What happens to the straw when you bend it with the same force? It breaks. So you have two different mentalities and you have two different physiologies undergoing the same impact. You got that so far? The third point is the person who complains of severe pain tends not to be believed. Nobody listens to them. You're making it up. You're just trying to, you're just trying to get a, a big payout. You're trying to get off work. You know, that reinforces their childhood experience of nobody being there for them and people not even believing them. Now, no wonder that second person is more traumatized than the first. So the, so the, point is, perception, as you put it, has everything to do with it. 
it's 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 who is it happening to and what is the view of themselves and of the world the person who perceives the world already as dangerous and unpredictable um they can be hurt the other person no they just walk away so that's the difference let's segue to illness this was an example of an injury and earlier on you said that in your experience much illness you've seen is related to trauma can you talk about that Let's first of all go to the scientific side of it. I'll mention three conditions. Um, all of them um, more common amongst women, by the way. So first of all, multiple sclerosis, uh, which medical knowledge in its limitation sees as sort of a unexplainable neurological disorder image the immune system attacks the nervous system so it's an autoimmune condition inflammation of the nervous system then rheumatoid arthritis which again happens much more to women uh, about 80 percent of autoimmune disease happens to women um, inflammation of the joints and the connective tissues that's rheumatoid arthritis then breast cancer okay in 1870 the first person to describe multiple sclerosis, Jean-Martin Charcot, a French neurologist, said that this is a stress-caused condition. In 1890, the great Canadian physician and one of the founders of Johns Hopkins um, Medical Center in Baltimore, William Osler, Sir William Osler, said that rheumatoid arthritis was a nervous system condition caused by worry and stress. In 1870, now in, in six months ago in the New York Times, there was an article by Jane Brody about some new research that shows that women with breast cancer, if they're depressed, the chance of their prognosis is much worse because based on their emotions. In 1870, this is big news, but it wasn't big news at all. It's just that medical science or medical practice ignores all the evidence. In 1870, a British surgeon, James Paget, said the same thing. The connection between emotions and particularly uh, hopelessness and depression and breast cancer. <clears throat> now, since these medical giants made those observations for which they had no scientific evidence at all because they didn't have the science, they just had their intuition. There's been research on breast cancer, on multiple sclerosis, on rheumatoid arthritis, repeated research that shows the relationship between emotions, difficult emotions, repressed emotions, and the onset of disease and stress and the onset of these diseases. And I quote some of that research in The Myth of Normal. And I wrote about it previously in a book of mine called When the Body Says No. The research is not even controversial. Most physicians don't hear about it. Now, what is the connection? The connection is very simple, very scientific, very basic, not taught in the medical schools, which is almost astonishing, that mind and body can't be separated. So my emotional states have an impact on my physiology. Why? Because of the emotional centers in my brain, my nervous system, my immune system, and my hormonal apparatus are not separate systems. It's one super system they're not connected it's more than that they're one so when i repress anger i'm actually affecting my immune system now people who get chronically ill i notice certain characteristics um in family practice and this has been researched by others as well so i'm not making this up i when i saw it i i had no basis for it because nobody told me this but then i realized found out there was a lot of research as well people who are tend to be compulsively looking after the emotional needs of others and ignoring their own. People who are identified with their duty and role and responsibility rather than also the needs of the self. People who repress their healthy anger. There was a study in the States not that long ago that looked at 2,000 women over 10 years. Those women that were unhappily married and didn't talk about it were four times as likely to die as those women who were unhappily married and did express their emotions. So the issue wasn't happiness or unhappiness. The issue was, did they express it? Because 
because the immune system is connected to the emotions. When you're repressing your emotions, you're also repressing your immune system in certain ways. Now, the final characteristic is people who believe that A, they're responsible for other people feel, and B, they must never disappoint anybody. Now, if you look at this culture between the two major genders, which is the one that's programmed by this particular culture to take care of others emotionally while ignoring their own needs, including their spouses? Which, which is the ones who are told to identify with their duties rather than the needs of the self? Which is the one that is taught not to be angry, they must repress their anger? And which is the one that's made to feel responsible for other people feel? It's not exclusive to women, but by and large it is women. And so that's why there's more autoimmune disease amongst women. And the more stress and the more um, social oppression uh, people experience, the greater the risk for all these conditions. So women of color are even more likely to have autoimmune disease than Caucasian women. And in Canada, where I live, indigenous women have six times the rate of rheumatoid arthritis than that of somebody else. Six times. This is in a population that never used to have autoimmune disease at all. So what we're talking about is that emotions can't be separated from your physiology. You cannot be separated from your environment. And that means when you have an illness, that's not just a manifestation of pathology in a particular organ in an isolated body, but it's a manifestation of a lifelong process of a life that grew up in a certain environment, in a certain culture, in certain relationships. So to understand the source of disease, you have to look way beyond the individual organ, individual body, and look at their social situation and their emotional dynamics. That's the message in a nutshell. And so if trauma is similar to stress in that we all have varying degrees of it, whether it's big T or little t, and like stress, you, you can't eliminate it, but you can you can manage it. How do we all become better at managing our trauma? What does that look like in our day-to-day? -day? Well, Justin, I wouldn't use the word manage, okay? Um, because um, I'm talking about resolving it, you know, so that it doesn't affect you the same way. Um, so there, you know, it's useful to learn stress management techniques, and there's a whole bunch of them out there, including mindfulness and so on. But I'm I'm interested in something deeper than that, which is healing the trauma and and resolving that. Now, for example, to go back to my disease-prone personality, those four traits that I outlined, it's a big word missing for all, in all, from all of those. You know what that big word is? No. People have trouble saying no. So in this book, now, why do they have trouble saying no? Really interesting question. Because you got children, you told me before we began the recording. Uh, how old are they now? Uh, we have two girls, almost six and three and a half. Excellent. Um, what's the word they started using at age one and a half? Oh, of course, it was no. Exactly. Now, why does nature do that? Why did nature say this is this is natural? This is automatic. This is universal. This we're programmed for it. Now, why? Because um, wouldn't be much more pleasant. If nature had told the kid to say yes instead, hey, time to put your shoes on. Yes. You know, time for supper. Yes. You know, no, it's no. Why is that? It's because nature's agenda is that we should all develop into independent human beings with our own sense of what we want and what we don't want. Our own sense of values, our own sense of, of, of perspective on the world, our own desires. And in other words, nature wants to set a boundary between ourselves and other people's will. Otherwise, we never become independent. So nature's agenda is independence, actually. And if we don't know how to say no, our yeses don't mean anything at all. You live in Miami, you told me, if I come to Miami, invite you for coffee, and you don't know how to say no, you're gonna say yes automatically. The yeses doesn't mean a thing. It doesn't mean you really wanna be with me. You might not even like me, but you don't know how to say no. You come to Miami, invite me for coffee. I'm definitely coming. I, I got that one. But what if? You, <laughs> but, that, but but your yes is only meaningful if you know, if you know how to say no. You get that? Of course. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Of course. So, what's the impact on you if if you don't want to come to have coffee with me because you're tired, or really busy, or stressed about something? 
And if I invite you to a coffee and you don't say no, what's the impact on you afterwards? Sure, you get upset. You you, you go into that meeting, you know, you're a little bit uh, upset. You're you're upset with yourself that you said yes, and then you're you're not fully present, and maybe you're short, maybe you're angry on the drive over. Yeah, you're resentful. You you're, you're resentful. Yeah, all that has physiological impacts on your body. These aren't just thoughts in the head; these are bodily experiences. And uh, furthermore, you'll be tired afterwards because you're already tired to start with. And now you make yourself more tired. So not saying no has impacts on you. So why do people have trouble saying no? Here's the big question, because they began life by saying no. So what happened? What happened was, is they got their message early in childhood that in order to be acceptable to their parents, they have to be compliant, they have to suppress their own will, their own needs, their own perspective and they have to just serve others. That's a very simplification of what I call the tension between attachment, our need to connect, and authenticity, our need to be ourselves. So that's what happens to a lot of people. So people that don't know how to say no, and they tend to be not exclusively, but largely women in the society, in order to, they learned in childhood that they mustn't be their authentic selves in order to be acceptable. And all their lives, now they have trouble saying no. If they have trouble saying no, that's going to be very stressful for them. So my intention is not just to manage the stress, but prevent it by teaching people to say no. For example, I have no. I, I say no all the time. So maybe I've got another issue there. Well, there is two kinds of no. There's the authentic, um, responsive no that says no. I'm considered this, and this is not me. I don't want to do it. Then is the automatic no, which is just a exaggeration of that one and a half year old's automatic resistance you 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 tell me which one you've got maybe you've got i've got the authentic one uh it, it's take it's taken work no i i've had the other i've had the other one quite a bit in my life so so hi it's take it's taken work it's been a process i am a work in i am a work in progress of course we all are we're all on a journey it's, it's a, you're, you're never done and so you know we started talking about parenting and kids and Something else you've talked about in previous work, but the influence of, of peer groups and this idea of holding your children close. Can you talk a bit about that? The subtitle of this book is um, The Myth of Normal is, is Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture. And when I talk about the influence of peers on children, I'm talking about one of the toxicities of our culture. So how we evolved as creatures, as human beings, was in small band hunter-gatherer groups. So for hundreds of thousands of years, before we became Homo sapien, and even after we became Homo sapien, about 150,000, 200,000 years, about 200,000 years ago, we lived in small band hunter-gatherer groups, which meant that kids grew up around adults all the time. Everybody went everybody to get everywhere together. Children had multiple parenting figures in their lives. I mean, the, uh, the biological parents would be the primary ones, but there'd be aunts, uncles, grandparents, you know, friends, and children were held in this very securely held, securely maintained environment of a network of caregiving adults. That's how we evolved. That's our nature. Nature never intended us to live in nuclear family isolated bungalows where a single father, a single mother, or a single couple away from extended family, is raising kids. So we're living in a very unnatural situation now. Now, what's the consequence? Children have a need to attach. Now, the, the need to attach is wired into our brain. Attachment means to be close to somebody for the purpose of taking care of them or to be taken care of by them. So children have this attachment need. They can't live without it. Even birds can't live without the attachment drive of the infant to connect to the parent and of the parent to connect to the infant. So we have this circuit in our brain for attachment. We can't live without it. But nature doesn't tell us who we should attach to. There's a good reason for it. See, if nature told your children to attach only to you and your spouse, what's the danger there? I, think that, I don't know if they'd have any friends or be able to attach to a partner later on in life. And also you might die. Even now you might, you know, and that would leave them to totally helpless. So we have the circuit to attach, 
without any information as to who to attach to. It's the job of a community of the culture to make sure that children's attachments happen the way they're meant to happen. So when a duckling hatches from the egg, what do they, they see the mother duck. You know what that process is called? It's called imprinting. Imprinting means the duckling essentially says to themselves, this is the creature whom I'm relying for support, nurturing, guidance, protection, and help until I become an adult. That's imprinting as an attachment process. Now, as we know, if the duckling hatches with the mother duck absent, the duckling will still attach because their brains have to attach. But who will they attach to? They'll attach to anybody who's around. Could be a dog, a horse, or a mechanical toy. None of which are designed by nature to bring that duckling up to adulthood. The human brain is the same. The child's brain can't handle what is called an attachment void, an absence of attachment. Nature, nature assumes that the culture will take care of that attachment. That's how we evolved in these small band hunter groups. But in our society, 25% of American women have to go back to work within two weeks of giving birth. That's a major abandonment trauma of the, for the child. And, uh, and a lot of parents, just because they have to work, you know, and also because women very rightly want to feel that they can make a contribution to society, they can express themselves professionally or uh, through uh, a career uh, or through working um, just as much as men can. So a lot of children spend most of their time from very early age on, no longer with the nurturing adults, but where? In daycares, kindergartens, schools, preschools, where most of their contact is with who? With other children. Now, their brains can't handle the attachment void. Now they have to fill the attachment void, just like the duckling, with whoever's around. Who's around are other kids, and our kids become attached to other kids. And the problem is that the brain can't handle competing primary attachments. So it's very difficult for any human being to be genuinely and equally in love with two people at the same time. Usually the one one is chosen, the other one is rejected. When children become peer attached, they start resisting the parents. When they start resisting the parents, the parents try to become authoritarian about controlling their behavior. And as they do, they create more resistance. It's not the fault of the parents. It's the fault of a culture that doesn't honor attachments. So is the message for parents, try to be as present as, as you can in your children's lives? Yeah, the message for parents is, no matter how you live your life, you need to stay as the primary attachment for your children. Don't invite play dates until you're very sure of your child's attachment to you. You know, um, if, your kids have, if, if your kids have to go to daycare, there's this idea that we have to socialize kids. No, we don't. Socialization is an automatic natural process. It happens to people who are well attached, feel good about themselves, and well individuated. Now they can attach, now they can socialize in a very free and spontaneous fashion. And so, not that I'm telling people that they should homeschool their kids. I couldn't have homeschooled my kids, but homeschooled kids, interestingly enough, make better friends later on and stronger friendships because they feel better about themselves for the most part, not always, but for the most part. Now, it means that if your kids have to go to daycare or if they go to school and they spend most of the day away from you, don't assume when they come back that they still belong to you. You have to, as my friend, co-writer, there's a book that I wrote called Hold On To Your Kids where all this is laid put in. Yes, Fanta fantastic book. Thank you. And the main author of that is Gordon Ufeld, a uh, psychologist. And Gordon says, collect them before you direct them. So that when you see them at night, it's not about how's school and, you know, what's your homework? It's about, hello, let's sit down together and hang on together. Gather them in again. Make sure they belong to you before you start directing them. So, in other words, this culture is nuts in the way that it has broken apart healthy adult-child relationships, destroyed communities, um, severed um extended family contacts, destroyed neighborhoods. We have to compensate for the failures of the culture by making sure that our kids stay attached to us. And there's ways to do that, but we have to be aware of the problem and not assume that our kid, and, and for God's sakes, 
keep this away from young kids. You're pointing. You're pointing to the iPhone, of course. Keep it away from them because this iPhone and the and the computer technology connects kids to each other, even when they're not with each other, long before they're ready to handle it. So when are they ready to handle it? Is there a specific age? Look, it's there's no specific age so much as there's and, and we do talk about this and hold on to your kids. We added two extra chapters just to deal with this, but. It's like, when are you going to offer a kid a glass of wine? It's when they can handle it, you know? So that may not be tied to a specific age. It's tied to their maturation. So when you have a good relationship with your child to the point where the child respects you and follows your guidance, now you're safe to expose them to the technology because you can regulate it. But if your child is not well connected to you, if your child is more connected to the peer group and you give them a computer, all they're going to do is deepen their relationship with the peer group and you come into the room, they're going to hate you. And, and and you try and peel them off the computer, it's like trying to get... Look, I used to work with drug addicts and I used to have my own addictive behaviors. Trying to separate a kid from their computer once they become addicted is like separating an addict from their drug. So you mentioned multi-generational living, the power of... Of real connection, uh, what we've done to communities. It reminds me of one of my favorite studies, the Rosetto study. So the Rosetto study- I heard the name, but I it was in, Yeah, yeah Lissa talked about it, Mind Over Medicine. So it was a small, close-knit Italian community in the 1950s, Rosetto, Pennsylvania. Oh, yeah. Multi, multi-generational living. Where people lived longer? Was, was paramount, yes. And so yeah. they, they, they were very close-knit. Yeah. They were, you know, doing all the things we, we, you know, we know we shouldn't do. They were drinking wine, they were smoking, they were eating meatballs, they were doing this every night, but they were doing it together. And this is when heart disease started to explode in America. Rosetto was way under the national average. I think it, it was like complete absence of heart disease to some degree. And no one could explain it. And then in the 1960s, the community started to break up. People moved away. Ties became weaker. Heart disease arrived in Rosetto. And to me, it speaks to everything you're talking about in terms of multi-generational living, connection, and where we sit today is I think about the, the culture we're living in and the trauma and the illness and all the things you talk about, I think about Rosetta. Well, that's why I call it a toxic culture, you see, um, because it actually makes people sick. And um, if you look at the number of kids being diagnosed with all manner of so-called mental health conditions, ADHD, so-called oppositional defiant disorder, uh, anxiety, depression, the number of kids killing themselves, suicidal, suiciding is going up in the, in the United States. The number of overdoses in the U.S. last year exceeded 100,000 people. The U.S. lost more people, almost as many people to overdoses in one year as they had lost in all the Iraq, Afghan, and Vietnam wars put together. Women's ratio of multiple sclerosis, when in the 1930s it used to be about one man for every woman, almost now it's three and a half women to every man. Uh, the rates of the, the rates of autoimmune diseases are going up. So here's this is in a something like 70 um, percent of American adults are at least on one medication. 40 percent are on two medications. We're talking about a toxic culture, unless we think that these are all individual uh, and genetically determined misfortunes or random misfortunes. We have to look at the conditions that is driving all this pathology. And I'm telling you how we're living, the lies that we're living by, the way parents are taught to raise their kids, the way kids are schooled. Look, um, there was a, last week, two weeks ago, Elon Musk acquired Twitter. First thing he did was hire, fire 7,500 people. Just like that. There was a report in the British Guardian a few days ago, some in the United States, some furniture building factory fired 2,500 people while they were sleeping. They sent them texts just before Thanksgiving. They sent them a text saying, you're fired, don't even come into work until we make sure that security is okay. Now, when you look at what stresses people scientifically, what creates physiological stress for people or insecurity, lack of information, uncertainty, conflict, and lack of control. And in society, those are rampant. Unemployment and the loss of a job isn't just an economic hardship. It's also a blow to your physiology. 
And we know that people who are chronically unemployed have more heart disease, for example. So uh, we can't separate the mind from the body, the individual from the environment. We are what has been called biopsychosocial creatures, which means that our biology is dependent on our psychological states, and that depends on our social relationship with others. That's just a scientific fact about human beings. But is there something, as, as, I, as I hear you talk, I think about other points in history, growing up in World War II, uncertainty, war, conflict, lots going on. Is there something that's unique to the time we live in today to make it so much worse? What, what is it? Disconnection, isolation, people being on their own. One of the things that, um, if you look at multiple sclerosis, for example, stress triggers the flare-ups, but social connection mitigates and diminishes the the risk of flare-ups. So, so human beings are social creatures. So loneliness, for example, uh, extreme loneliness is a risk factor for illness. When you're lonely, you're likely to get sicker faster and to die quicker of your disease. Now, there's an epidemic of loneliness. The number of Americans who say they're lonely has gone up exponentially in the last several decades. In Britain, they've had to establish a minister for loneliness, for God's sakes. But it's the conditions of modern life and modern uh, globalized culture that promotes the loneliness. <clears throat> so that it's isolation, it's loss of community, it's loss of connection. In the 1930s, the depression was very hard on a lot of people economically, very stressful. But if you read the literature of the time, there was a much more sense of social connection. People were poor together. People struggled together. And uh, that is missing for us. So it's the disconnection. So if disconnection is driving this, how do we right this ship? Yeah. Uh, well, I think there are two big issues here. And I, the reason I sighed and kind of shook my head here if you're hearing this you can't see that but it's because that's a very big question to which i don't pretend to have a satisfactory answer but here here's some beginnings steps towards an answer for one thing we have to recognize the nature of the culture that we're living in and recognize that we think what we think is normal is neither healthy or natural and communally we have to start thinking about different solutions of how to live our lives and how to run our communities. We have to use the technologies that we have to connect with each other. Modern communication technology has all kinds of terrible consequences, but it has certainly made possible communication amongst mature adults. People need to bring virtual, at least build virtual communities where they can share ideas and share their miseries and share their joys and talk about their values and so on. So. We need to see connection on the local level, on the internet level, if possible. Um, we have to actually bring trauma awareness. I'm, I make very simple suggestions in the last chapter of the book. What if we actually introduce that? See, the stuff I talked about today, which is more than amply scientifically demonstrated, is completely ignored by medical education, which is astonishing. But the average medical student doesn't hear a word about trauma except in the specific case of post-traumatic stress disorder. But the relationship between trauma, stress, and multiple sclerosis, for example, or rheumatoid arthritis, or breast cancer, well-documented in the literature, is not mentioned in medical schools. They don't even hear about it. So let's introduce trauma and stress education to the medical schools, into our schools, so when teachers see kids with all these troubled behaviors, they don't focus on the behavior. They understand the emotional dynamics of the child, and they can read to the child as a human being, not just as a problem, with a problem behavior. That would change the experience of a lot of kids in school, especially kids who come from difficult backgrounds. Um, what if we introduce trauma education into the legal system so that the judge and the lawyer and the prosecutor were looking at these criminals understood what the source was not to validate or to support or to accept harmful behavior but how to help rehabilitate people afterwards rather than just punishing them that would change so many things you know um on the individual level we need to look at what was our childhood programming to what extent am i living a life that expresses who i am where i'm free to say what i think and what i feel 
and to what extent do I suppress myself to satiate or, or to um, propitiate others, to, to make them accept me, to be nice? To what extent do I suppress myself so that others will accept me? These are all the questions that we have to ask ourselves. I think it's doable. And in closing, on a personal level, what has made the greatest impact in your personal life in terms of all the things you talk about and, and, and working on trauma, working through it, becoming more self-aware? I think two things. Um, <clears throat> one is personal, the other is relational. <clears throat> the personal one, if I've all, I always wanted to know why. Like as soon as I realized what happened in a genocide in Eastern Europe that really swept away so much of my own family, I wanted to know why is it that people suffer and why is it that they make each other suffer? So that question has driven me since I was a teenager. And uh, you learn a lot about that through medical practice. So just a willingness to keep asking questions. And th that willingness is with me up until now, and I hope it'll stay with me for the rest of my days. On the personal level, yes, I've done emotional healing work. I've also taught it to others and guided others, many others. But what made the most personal difference to me was my marriage relationship, where, because what happens in a marriage, folks, I hate to tell you, we always find somebody to partner with that is exactly at the same level of traumatization that we are, even if it looks different. My wife didn't grow up in Eastern Europe with midst of a war, genocide. She grew up in sunny or often rainy, but very peaceful Vancouver, British Columbia. But the level of trauma, although the externals look quite different, was at the same degree as mine. We always find somebody at the same level of traumatization, which means that in a good relationship, people can grow up together. And most of my growing up has been and continues to be in my marriage. Uh, because um, as I say in the first chapter is that <laughs> my misfortune is that I married somebody who understands me. You know, she doesn't, <laughs> she doesn't let me get away with being the poor traumatized child in the body of an adult. She, she demands that her needs be met. That wasn't always the case, by the way. There was a period in my life when my wife really suppressed herself. She suffered. And then she learned, nah, not anymore. Now I had to either keep up with her or say goodbye. I'd rather prefer to keep up with her. And so the marriage relationship, I think, is a wonderful opportunity if both are willing to heal trauma and to grow up together. Well said, Gabor. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you.